Welcome to this episode of Church Grammar. Today's episode is brought to you by my friends over at the Text and Canon Institute of Phoenix Seminary, led by scholars Peter Gurry and John Mead. They've launched a new website, textandcanon.org. You can find that in the show notes as well, textandcanon.org. And it's a new helpful website with a lot of resources on the textual history of the Bible, on canonization and translation, and all these big questions about how we got our Bible and what we know about the Bible that we have. And they've got articles uh, for beginners, intermediates, advanced. So really, wherever you're at, whatever questions you have, layperson, student, pastor, teacher, and everybody in between, they've got something for you there. So I hope you'll check that out. My friends at Phoenix Seminary, I really love what they're doing there. Uh, Brian Arnold, their president, Steve Duby, and others that they have on faculty there that you have heard on this podcast. Uh, they're just doing really great work, and so I'm happy uh, to point you to their website, textandcanon.org. Today's episode is a conversation with Ephraim Radner. We talk about figural readings of the Bible. We talk about his work on thinking through how the Bible and the world relate to each other, how all of reality is contained in and described by Scripture. We also talk a little bit about the implications of that, particularly the work that he has done on human suffering. So I hope you'll enjoy my conversation with Ephraim Radner. As always, we are brought to you by the Christian Standard Bible. You can go to csbible.com to find out more about that English translation. And now, my conversation with Ephraim Radner. But first, no big deal. All right, I am joined by Ephraim Radner. Ephraim, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. So we just uh, we just talked a little bit beforehand. You went and unplugged your house phone, which I appreciated. I thought I told you my students wouldn't understand if there was something ringing in the background. So appreciate you. They probably don't here. even know what a landline is. Either. It's true. Yeah. These are relics. Every time I, I'm only 36 and I feel like I'm so out of touch already as it is. So, okay. So let's, uh, I want to talk about a few things. I want to start with talking about your book, Time in the Word. Uh, a lot of the work that you do and a lot of the work that I and, and my colleagues appreciate is uh, your figural readings and your discussions about theological interpretation and canon and all these kind of related issues. And so what I want to do really is just kind of introduce people to uh, your methodology, uh, this book, and some of the things that you're doing. So when you talk about figural readings, uh, maybe just a basic definition there, what do you mean when you talk about figural readings of Scripture? It's a, that's a helpful question because people get confused. I get confused. Um, <laughs> but when I use the term figural reading, I'm using it in an inclusive sense. To, that is to include a whole bunch of other more particular, if you will, um, rhetorical tropes somebody might uh, in, uh, apply to scripture like allegory or typology and so on. So figural reading includes that. It's a general term. Sometimes it's I don't think helpfully necessarily another term used for it might be spiritual reading or something. When you look at somebody like the Catholic theologian, Henri de Lubac, it's generally just the notion that um, the words of the Bible, if you will, refer to lots of different things. Now there's more to be said than that, but they don't only refer to one thing. They are figures of lots of things. And, um, I'll leave it at that right now. I mean, obviously, you know, we have metaphors and so on and so forth. We have historical reference. We, you know, Solomon refers to a king in Israel at a certain time and so on. But 
we say Solomon also refers to Jesus, um, or David does more, I suppose, more uh, normally, uh, that, that would be a figural referent for David. Uh, Jesus Christ is a figural referent. Is that historical? Is that a metaphor? Is that, it's more than that. Um, I'll, I can get into that. Generally, I would say that the notion that the Bible refers figurally is a fundamental claim about how the words of scripture operate and why they operate and to what end. Yeah, I'd be happy to let you keep expanding on that because I think that is helpful. You use figural as sort of a an umbrella for a lot of types of things that happen in scripture. So what type of taxonomy or reading strategies do you think through when you're reading the text? You know, how do you identify some of these things? What, what's what's in the air of the scripture as you're reading that, that brings these things to mind? Uh, I suppose, even though I'm not particularly happy with the category metaphysics as applied to sort of explaining scripture, I do think there is a metaphysical set of presuppositions or foundations for properly uh, assessing what scripture is and how it works. And that, that metaphysical foundation is that scripture is God's word speaking to us in ways that can be textually or verbally articulated. Um, but it's God's word. And so the, the, the key issue is that if it's God's word that scripture is, it doesn't function the way human words function. In some ways, that's that's a given in most people's understanding of scripture. But I think it's generally been sort of slowly eroded as a fundamental commitment for understanding the Bible. It was quite clear in Judaism and in, in the early church that this was the case. When we say, and scripture itself says, the Holy Spirit says X, Y, and Z. What do we mean by that? Well, we mean it's God speaking. And if God speaks and God creates through his word and does other things through his word. The whole point here is that scripture is a divinely creative set of acts or act by God. And so therefore the words are actually doing things. They're not just referring to things in the way human words might, we might think they should. Uh, they're actually doing things and they're doing everything that God does in a certain way. Uh, maybe not everything, or maybe not in a way that's exhaustive of who God is, but in any case, far more than we could ever possibly imagine human words functioning as. Scripture is actually a fundamental, creative, ordering, structural uh, force of God within creation. And that means that anything that it said is somehow expressing the complete ordering, structuring, creating um, realities of who God is. So they, it can't be, the word, word of God cannot be simply constricted to single referential meanings the way human words do. They mean everything that God means. Uh, now, what does that mean? How, how do we sort of parse that exactly? Well, historically, the figural reading of scripture was a way of responding to the fact that the divine words uh, go everywhere that God would go in his intentions. They refer to everything, and, and those are its figures. Uh, David can refer to Christ. That's an obvious one. David can refer to all kinds of things, and he can refer to all kinds of ways that Christ refers to Christ, uh, Christ's life, Christ's actions, Christ's teaching. Uh, but the whole world is figured in scripture. That's, that is the fundamental claim. The whole world that God has made, 
God's world, so that would include presumably the cosmos itself, is referred to, included in the referring act of scripture. Uh, it's a reverse of, of a common modern way of looking at how text function, the Bible functions. So generally we would think that, you know, the Bible's talking about X, X happened then, it happened in this place and that place. So the Bible refers, and if you have a high view of this kind of scriptural reference, the Bible refers truthfully to the facts of history. I am claiming you got to reverse that. Um, it's not that the Bible refers to history, it's that history in some ways refers to scripture. So a figural reading is one that pursues in some fashion, and we can ask how so that it doesn't go in the wrong ways, but it pursues in some fashion scripture's meaning along the lines of, of scripture's inclusive uh, referencing of reality, including time and space and people and, and so on. Yeah, that leads to, to the next question I had there, which was, you know, you're not talking about figural readings merely as a reading strategy for the Bible, although that's obviously part of it, but you obviously have this bigger metaphysical, ontological, whatever you want to say, kind of idea that this is how we view the world, right? This is about reality and history and, and things that are not just contained in the words, but kind of explain bigger things. So maybe you can talk through that a little bit, because you have uh, in your book, uh, Time in the Word, you have this background of you've got historical critical method and what that does to the Bible as, as reading it as a believer. But also you have this sort of larger view of how the modern world views history. That's a problem as well, right? So maybe get into some of those issues. Well, sure. So let, and I think since I wrote Time in the Word, I think my sense of these elements has, has expanded <laughs> rather than contracted in any way, certainly. Um, God speaks the world somehow, whatever that means. God said, let there be light, there was light, and so on. So the world that we are in, let's call it creation. Creation is spoken by God. God speaks scripture. Both the speaker and the speech of God in its highest form that we can possibly designate, we certainly can't imagine it, is Jesus Christ, the Son, or is the Son who then is incarnate as Jesus. So you have, you have God speaking, you have the word, and you have creation, all of which come out of God speaking. So scripture, finally, which are the words, could say the words of the word, which I get from an Anglican, my own Anglican background, the articles of religion speak in these terms. Words of the word are utterly congruent and coherent with God speaking creation. Everything about scripture grounds creation. This, as I said, is a very Jewish concept at least classically Jewish understanding that God created the world out of Torah, not the other way around. He didn't first create the world and then Torah was whatever it was dictated to Moses or whatever. Rather, Torah pre-exists logically the world, metaphysically the world. The world, you could say, Torah is the blueprint of the world. Torah founds the world. And there are lots of mystical ways Judaism did this. I'm suggesting something analogous, although with respect to the reality of the sun, the, 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 the world proceeds from the sun whose word scripture is. And thus the world is subordinate. It, the creation follows scripture. It does not, it's not the arena and the container for scripture. And, and hence history follows scripture. 
Scripture doesn't record history. It does that in some fashion, but that's a that's a third order, fourth order thing that, that, that scripture might do. It precedes logically and metaphysically anything that we might experience in creation, all of our lives, in everybody's lives, and the lives we don't know about, and the things we've never heard of are already somehow in scripture. You see, that somehow doesn't explain anything. I realize that, and it seemed like a fudge. But it, actually, it's our vocation as readers of scripture to explore the somehow more and more. It's endless. It's absolutely endless. Scripture is an endless book. So who, uh, I mean, you talk about this not being a new thing, and that's something else that I appreciate about your work is you're doing a lot of, uh, quote unquote, retrieval uh, of thinking through how the tradition has thought through this. So um, who in the tradition has influenced you the most on how you think through these things? I know you interact with Augustine and Athanasius and all kinds of different people. Who is who's influenced you the most? Would you say these are these are all classic people? That's correct, and it's to them that I think I've been most um, most drawn. I will I'll, I'll, I'll repeat something I've said elsewhere uh, in explaining things, and and it's not so that it's not so much that my mind changed radically as a result of this experience. It just got focused more, and that experience in particular was when I was asked to write a commentary on Leviticus for the Brazos series, which I had, you know, I didn't ask for this story. I was one of the group of initial editors and a bunch of books were, were sort of parceled out to each editor. I, I was the last to open my mouth and all that was left was Leviticus. So I got stuck with Leviticus. Nobody else wanted it. And I didn't, I, I was too slow to say anything else. So um, perhaps too junior or whatever it was, but in any case, um, I entered that that project um, not knowing what I was going to discover. And what I discovered um, was, uh, I just mentioned Judaism. I discovered that um, the most, not, not the only, but nonetheless, taken as a whole, the most fertile readings of Leviticus were Jewish. And, and for perhaps obvious reasons, it's the you know, center of the sacrificial system, it's the laws, the laws of cleanliness and all this kind of stuff. It is a, a central book in the Torah uh, for all kinds of reasons. And in Christianity, it fell out more and more from being a book that was interesting to anybody. It had a sort of basic use, which was to sort of figure Christ's sacrifice on the cross and how all the other details of Leviticus then kind of fell away mostly. Um, and so it wasn't that really interesting a book to Christians more and more. Um, so I had to work hard to see how it was read by people. And so the, the order of interest was this. It was rabbinic commentary, origin, and um, that's about it. Bits and pieces in the medieval uh, period that were taken from it. Um, but that was about it. And it, it, the introduction to my, to my commentary also refers, um, although he didn't really write about Leviticus, but as a way of thinking, to Pascal. So I just want to point out a 17th century uh, reader, not just early church reader, had a sense of what it took, not so much in this case, a commentary on a particular book, but what it took for a Christian, what was going on when a Christian reads a book of the Bible, any book of the Bible, especially the Old Testament, um, that I thought was very, very um, illuminating. And part of it was an opening up 
It's just an opening up to the power of God in Christ that, that, that is, in fact, that which is ordering your life. That's what scripture does. So Pascal has been a, a, an influence. But in terms of actually seeing it done, I do think rabbinic commentary, obviously not on the New Testament, but rabbinic commentary in general, is a model. And origin learned from that. I mean, one of the things that uh, scholars of, of, of the history of interpretation have recognized, recognized for some time and have begun to look at more and more is the way that rabbinic exegesis and early church exegesis developed in a parallel way with some crossing of influences or at least uh, origins, uh, hermeneutically, methodologically, and so on, so that Rabbinic exegesis, you could say, in the early church, whether it's origin and, and then more, more, I would say, expansive, interesting way, finally, Augustine. These are not opposites. These are, these are ways of reading the Bible that mutually, in various ways that we still aren't sure about, influenced each other. And that's why they're, that's why they're similar and why one might go back to them and not uh, feel that you were having to choose some yeah. fashion. And, and as I said, one of the things my book although uh, also argues is that this way of reading was never lost in the church. It, it, it went through a sort of evolutions and developments, which in some ways on a sort of high level, what do you want to call it, you know, academic, intellectual, theological level, slowly constricted its application um, figural reading I'm talking about in this in this larger expansive sense, um, a, a constriction that then took on steam after the Reformation without any question, and that in the university setting simply disappeared in both Protestant and Catholic circles, first Protestant, and then Catholic more recently, um, and that includes evangelical circles as well. It lived on in, in quite vital ways within sort of, if you will, more popular ways of reading the Bible, both Protestant and Catholic, and probably, again, maybe not in its fullest way, but nonetheless, a real way that's far richer than, than in, 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 in other Protestant Catholic traditions in Pentecostalism. That, that, that's something that people have just begun to look at. I mean, one of the great figural readers um, furthermore, outside of the West, one of the great figural readers of the 20th century is Watchman Nee, who is a Chinese, as people must know, a, a Chinese Christian evangelical with certain odd ideas. You wouldn't call him a Pentecostal necessarily, although he certainly had elements that are that are overlap in his views of the role of the spirit and so on. How did that happen? <laughs> well, he didn't he didn't figure it out all for himself. It was at least as I've read about him. It was a, a way of reading the Bible that he actually uh, was taught from certain missionaries, the Keswick movement and so on, and, and evangelical Anglicanism even, and other ways, and then his own fertile imagination in, in a good sense and faith were able to make use of it in very creative forms. But, and he was outside of the, outside of the, constricting influence of Western academic theology and biblical studies, um, you know, and he ended up in, in, in the uh, camps of the communists where he finally dies and so on. But um, it didn't disappear. 
it was there and it continues to be part of the of the lifeblood of Christian um, reception, reading, and formation within and by the scriptures uh, to our day. It's just that most of these most of these places are not respected by academic theology and biblical studies, to be quite honest. Yeah, and so what what are some you know you're, you're talking about this shift, uh, this modern shift towards sort of historical critical and uh, you could even say canonic hermeneutics, uh, hermeneutics in some places where there's this sort of uh, dismissal of all these things as fanciful and let's just try to reconstruct the, the author's historical intent. Let's try to reconstruct the author's historical moment and, and what was their library like and what were they reading and who influenced who. Um, a lot of that kind of stuff ha has replaced what you're doing and what you're saying. Um, in what ways do you think that that has contributed? Has there been anything helpful that's come out of uh, these types of readings? Do you think that they are mostly poisoning the well or how do, how do you sort of interact with, with some of those ideas in biblical studies? Well, I like to say that things like historical criticism, as it developed, I mean, you know, what it is today is not what it was in the 16th century, but, but there were elements that were already beginning and before that, actually. But by a certain point, certainly the 17th century increasingly, the 18th, I mean, there are different points in different Christian traditions and countries where this sort of jumps forward or not. Um, but historical criticism and many of the elements that have become specialized niches within it, um, whether it has to do with a certain kind of sociological and, and, and cultural criticisms and so on, these are, these are, to me, at their best, ascetic disciplines. They're meant to train the reader of scripture to see certain things and to see them clearly and to pay attention. Uh, they're, they're disciplines of attentiveness of a kind, but they're just, they're limited disciplines. There are lots of disciplines that one should bring to bear in reading, reading the text. And the, the problem, of course, is when they become and have become the great definers of how to read a text, number one, because they have presuppositions about what the text is, which, which are very reductive. Um, and so one of the major problems is that historical criticism functions according to a, a totalizing view of what time is. That time is a certain thing or functions in a certain way. It can be reduced to a chronological sequence that follows certain laws of experience that can be studied in the same way one sort of does archaeology, uniform laws of experience that human beings all experience the same things in the same way. And that reality is actually exhaustively described in these historical terms. Now, it's a complex you know, history again uh, as to why this happened and developed intellectually. How did, and we'll I'll use the term historicism as sort of a big one. I, I know that term can be interpreted in different ways, but viewing the world metaphysically as exhaustively described in terms of chronological sequence is what I'll call historicism. And there are reasons why this developed, different reasons, different moments. One of them that I've looked at is especially um, the division of the church and, and the conflicts among Christians, which demanded ways of making arguments to defend one's own um, place within the, within the genealogy of truth amongst Christians, this church or that church, which, which actually spurred historical studies in a certain way already by the 16th century. But there are other reasons, too. But in so doing, going back to what I said earlier, a notion that God is the creator 
of the world through his word and that God's omnipotence defies and certainly goes beyond our uh, ability to organize it in these ways has been lost. As people have pointed out, theoretical physics in our day is far more interesting um, than uh, historical biblical studies vis-a-vis its understanding of what the world looks like, including time itself. You know, uh, people are willing to look at the character of experience within contemporary theoretical physics in a way that's far more diverse uh, than the kind of puny, desiccated little worlds of people drawing up timelines and trying to figure out where things fit and how you can prove it and prove what the elements in that timeline are that define what's, in this case, written in the scripture. Um, In some ways, it's laughable that we think so highly of, of this approach to scripture. But that's not where, that's not even where scientific views of the world uh, are falling in our day. So figural readings are the theoretical physics of the, uh, of the uh, interpretive world. Well, <laughs> I, I mean, the theoretical physics goes in all kinds of directions, many yeah. of which would contradict this. But sure. it's, it's an openness to the, to the complexity and mystery of God right? in a way that, that goes beyond, but at least theoretical physics is willing to apply in its own limited way to the cosmos. You know, if people can hypothesize and and try this idea out and that idea in physics, why? Because they know that reality is far more complex than the tools they are actually or the data they're actually using. They know that. Uh, they don't know what how to get to, into that and describe fully that complexity, but they know that that complexity demands that they get beyond certain uh, well-worn categories. Surely Christians should be doing something uh, similar, if not far more daring in their approach to scripture. So one of the things that I, I told you, I had a three-part podcast this summer on the Brazos, uh, four-hour uh, Brazos symposium that you kind of emceed. Um, about the the death of the Brazos series and all these kind of things, and, and Dr. Dan Trier about it, Madison Pierce and Chet Spellman, and we talked through a lot of the uh, where TIS has come from, where it's going, and all of this conversation there. Uh, so, do you have any uh, sort of brief reflections on the fall of the Brazos series, sort of the state of theological commentaries and theological interpretation in light of the work you're doing and kind of where you're seeing things going? What kind of what kind of reflections do you have on where we've come from and where we're going in that world? Leave aside Brazos right away. I mean, first off, obviously, it seems to me anyway, scriptural scholarship is uh, is just a grab bag these days. Um, there isn't anything driving it um, uh, in some kind of common direction uh, and with some common coherence. And that's true across the board, whether one is a sort of you know, historical critic of some kind, a political critic, a social critic, or cultural critic, or even a dogmatic critic, whatever, you know, you can find anything you want, but that's the nature, that's the nature of academic life and theological life. It's a market with more and more, a greater and greater plethora of choices out there. Um, That's all going to collapse for economic reasons, largely because um, you're lucky to have a job. I'm lucky to have a job. 
most uh, uh, biblical scholars are not going to be so lucky. Many uh, are, are not now, and there'll be fewer and fewer jobs. And so this whole this whole mechanism that drives um, the, the production of books and articles and theories and so on is it's collapsing and right now, and it's going to collapse further. That doesn't mean there'll be fewer books. There will be around all these things, but fewer and fewer people will pay much attention to them. So we're moving into a time, I think, where economically, both in terms of the larger uh, say publishing market, intellectually, uh, universities, but also the church itself, there'll be as many choices as there ever were. It's just that few people will be buying these things, metaphorically speaking. So, I mean, you know, Brazos didn't work in part because it became part uh, just of this market. And uh, it was just one more thing. And furthermore, a lot of people, uh, a lot of the, the, the production of the Brazos uh, commentaries were sufficiently diverse not to have a real a kind of profile that people could say, ah, this is what that is. That's what they think. They're part of this movement. Uh, we can either put them in a box or, or follow them or what have you. It was a diverse group and the commentaries were quite diverse methodologically and certainly what came out of them. By the way, I don't think that's a problem. I think that that was a, that was a virtue, um, but it didn't help it in the market. Yeah. So, you know, part of me says, I'm not sure that we need a whole bunch of commentaries. I think what we need is people, um, people uh, reading the Bible and preaching and teaching it, uh, whether in congregations or smaller groups or in seminaries, whatever are left of them. Um, we need people sort of actually reading the scriptures in a way that reflects, as far as possible, their divine origin and power. That's all. And any book that does that, that does manage to get published is a good book. And, and uh, you know, how is that going to look? It's going to look differently. But I just think the timidity with which we are engaging scripture right now um, uh, in terms of reading it and, 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 and sort of allowing it to do its work and thus applying it, you could say, although that's a, that's a, a smaller set of issues, um, the timidity with which we are doing that is, is, is astonishing to me, given what scripture is. Mm. Um, and uh, there have been some good signs uh, ecumenically, because I think part of, the, part of the issue is Christian disarray, and, and thus reading scripture together in a courageous, as I said, open fashion across across lines is is probably there's no way to predict it is probably where energy christian energies of witness are going to emerge mm. you want to say influencing converting energies of witness uh and so ecumenical efforts to read the scripture together i think have been important but i think they've sort of they've sort of you know died down a little bit as well uh we're also worried about method I think this is, this is, we're in search of a method. Uh, well, we're only in search of a method because we're, we don't have God as our witness, mm. <laughs> you know, I mean, in the scriptures as that. That's not to say that the, the churches aren't filled with people who take scripture seriously, but I think the seriousness which they take scripture is so radically 
reduced to certain methodological orientations that do a disservice to the actual reality of scripture. We're hiding ourselves from it. So if you could give advice to a pastor, somebody teaching the Bible, who was wanting to think through these things, what would be a handful of questions or or presuppositions you would say when you sit down and you open the text and you think, I'm going to read this, interpret it, and teach it? What would be some some default questions or things they should be thinking about that you would recommend to help sort of cure some of these things that, that you're talking about and move it forward in that way? One thing which we haven't talked about, which is clearly a part of figural reading of scripture, is that the alluded to it, scripture contains, we'll just say scripture contains the world, but that also means that scripture must be at least as complex as the world. Actually, it has to be much more complex than the world. So part of the part of, and people have talked about this, obviously, part of a figural reading of scripture is sort of engaging, opening up, uh, and following through on the intratextual complexities of scripture. Scripture is constantly referring to more and more of itself. If there are ways to sort of not practice that, but to be involved in the, the kind of what do you want to call it? It's kind of exfoliating, ramifying, intratextual complexity and richness of scripture. However, that's done and taught and engaged. I don't think there's single ways of doing it. I, but I think people are afraid of it. I you know, keep hearing, well, what's what's going to keep you, uh, you know, on the rails and weird people saying this and that. And, you know, part of it is, I mentioned Watchman Nee, there'd be any number of people who read Watchman Nee and say, what a wacko. <laughs> um, that's why that's why he is a wacko. Ah, but there is a church and a growing church that has followed him around the world and that survived of the greatest oppression and persecution that Christians have experienced in the last century, among others. And have some confidence that scripture will take you where you're supposed to go. Mm. But but it's this intratextual complexity issue. I'll call it richness, ramifying richness, that I think we have to have confidence is worth exploring, even though we don't have a map. Uh, we're afraid to do it without it. Well, we do have a map. He's Jesus Christ. And we've left that out, too, because uh, I did mention, you know, the words of Scripture are the words of the word. And any Christian figural reading of Scripture presumes that Scripture is utterly coherent with Jesus Christ. Hmm. Utterly. But by the same token, Jesus Christ is utterly coherent with Scripture. And that side of, I don't want to call it an equation, but that side of the relationship has been um, attacked, actually, not just forgotten, but attacked in modernity and not just modernity. So, you know, if in fact you, you bring a certain moral template to your reading of scripture, which you either think you've derived from or you think you should apply to Jesus, um, your sort of attempt to bring scripture and Christ together is going to be highly reductive as well. Mm. Justice, love, compassion, mercy, whatever these certain things are, which are not wrong, but if they become exhaustive principles for relating scripture and Christ, you've sort of undercut the whole point um, in one way, which is that the book of Judges is as much disclosive of, of Jesus as is, I don't know, the prologue of John, as much. Um, there would be a good exercise 
Take the prologue of John and the book of Judges and read them together in a way that doesn't say this text is no good because it doesn't fit that, but that says, I don't know how these fit together, but we're just going to keep going at it until we see how they do hmm. somehow. Um, and that's why I, say, I think we're, I think we're, we're timid about this. Um, we don't think it can be done. We're afraid to elevate certain texts of scripture to a Christological status uh, because they're, they're frightening. I mean, I, I, this is not news to people, you know, this, this, this sort of challenge. What do we do with the Psalms? Favorite, favorite example is Psalm 137. How can this be a Christologically um, coherent text? Why would you read it? Why would you say these are the words of Christ himself, et cetera, et cetera? Um, and what I would say is at least one of the will presuppositions of, of, of figural reading of scripture is that however difficult it is, they are. They are Jesus's words. And I may not understand how, but my calling is to engage that figure, to engage that and engaging that will be in fact the figural enterprise. Yeah, that's good. I think that's that's one way that I've uh, tried to explain to students when I talk about you know pre-modern exegesis, so-called or whatever, is there's that default setting to there's more here than what I see. And, and whether or not you like all the ways they go with it or whatever, that default setting to them, I think rightly so, is the Christian default setting. The default right. setting is the whole world is, is God's economy, including scriptures, or as you would say, inversely in some ways, right? So that, that I'm defaulting to thinking that, as Augustine said, there's always signs beyond the things, right? And sometimes even the things are signs and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, any, any approach that deals with the problems of scripture, of reading it, and, you know, ethical problems or what historical even, any approach that deals with these by excising scripture, part, portions of it, verses of it, words from it, concepts that seem to be located there, any approach that excises scripture from scripture is... I would say prima facie false. So uh, that 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 that's a negative. That's a negative rule. I'm not into rules per se, but that would be a negative rule. Um, if you have to take out parts of scripture in order to make sense of scripture, you have just taken a wrong turn. Hmm. Um, and and by 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 conversely, any reading of scripture that brings in more of scripture to sort of fill it out, to make sense of it, to it, that's, you're on the right track. Mm. So the, 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 the figural exegesis has the virtue of moreness and the vice of lessness. That's good. Okay, I want to move to uh, one last question that's related. You get into it in time in the world, and it seems like you've been developing this uh, idea, and, and uh, I just watched your, your Henry Center lecture just the other day, is this idea of theodicy, human suffering, uh, the sort of lived experience of us in this world. Um, and so is some of the work you're doing now, is it is it almost like a 2.0 to the things you were working out before of what this actually means for how we view reality or, or how is this kind of developed into uh, this anthropology, pneumatology and other things that you're doing now? Um, I'll just stick to the question of say human suffering, human limits and so on. It's not directly related, but certainly it is related. And it goes to what I just said. Uh, excising lessness of scripture versus the moreness of scripture. One of the great, one of the great um, uh, victims 
of scriptural excision, metaphorically understood, is violence, is um, ending this, is suffering, and so on and so forth. I mean, even Jesus' suffering has become increasingly problematic for people. It is interesting just to see that over time, you can see a progression of limitation of scriptural texts that deal with these things. And, and uh, so that's on the scriptural side. But it's the, the issue, of course, is that experientially, we all want to avoid suffering, but we have sort of, um, we have ethically labeled the difficult parts of our life as elements uh, that uh, should be consigned to disrepute. I wrote about this in particular, the two books on, on a time to keep about human mortality, and then the last book, Profound Ignorance, about modern pneumatology. That tendency to write out, literally, in, in the modern moralistic parlance, to cancel suffering um, from our lives, and therefore from scripture itself, has rendered our world increasingly intolerable. I mean, we might think that we're making the world a better place by labeling all suffering uh, something that ethically needs to be stamped out. I don't just mean in terms of alleviating suffering, but maybe that too. It's Charles Taylor who said, I believe, that part of the one of the one of the commitments of modernity is that suffering should not exist. Um, as far as possible, but that's a that that's that's a novel take on what a human life is, and by by embracing that novel take and pursuing it, we've actually rendered life in the world more and more difficult. As I said, to tolerate, to survive, um, everything becomes too much for us. Mm -hmm. um, I can't deal with this. I can't deal with that. I and mean, some of this and that is horrendous, by the way. I don't know. Wouldn't deny life that God has given us, and this does go back to this question of kind of as I mentioned at the beginning of time in the Word. One of the presuppositions from the early church always has been with respect to reading the Bible figuratively is omnipotence, mm -hmm. creative omnipotence. God has created our world, and He is omnipotent within it, and thus there are going to be. And Scripture does seem to reflect this. There are going to be whole swaths of our experience that are difficult to us because that is the world in which we have been placed, which we have made, we have lived in scripture, talks about it. Um, and what this means, you know, in terms of our, our, our sense of who we are as a self, our relationships with other people, including with um, procreation and with families, things that I've talked about in a Time to Keep and elsewhere, um, as well as our social policies and politics, finally. Um, what this means for all that is, is that we have to kind of step back to some extent, a real extent, and reassess the value of what we've been trying to run away from for so long in, in, the, in, in our own lives in the modern world. I mean, that's what some of these books are about. I mean, to put it bluntly, Suffering may be bad, but it may also be primarily, in some way, part of the gift of our createdness that we need to engage with a kind of faithfulness 
um, love, hope, those are the virtues, and even thanksgiving. Uh, by the so same token, they tell us something about God, which are, uh, uh, in many ways, our attempt to escape suffering has led to a kind of domestication of God. God begins to look more and more like the pharmacy and, and going to the doctors. Um, um, that's a real domestication. That's not who God is. Um, God is what often causes us to go to the pharmacy and to go see the doctor. Um, we don't want to admit that. But by not admitting it, this goes back to this other thing, we shy away from entering the complexity and richness of who God really is. I think we can end on, on that little mini sermon. That was, that was helpful and encouraging. So <laughs> thank you, Ephraim, so much uh, for the time and talking okay. through this with me.